Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history this week on the agenda. We're going to be having a chat about a couple of uh, a couple of very famous and, and very important battles that took place towards the end of the Second Persian Invasion of Greece, the Battles of Salamis and Plataea. Now, we've been talking, we've been following the story of the Greco-Persian Wars the last couple of weeks. I do recommend you go back and listen to the episodes on the Battle of Marathon, Battle of Thermopylae, uh, before listening to this episode, just to get your background knowledge here. Uh, Marathon, of course, crucial Greek victory that kept their hopes of resisting Persia alive, while Thermopylae was a defeat that nonetheless bolstered Greek morale and defences in the face of the Persian invaders. But today... We're going to talk about the direct aftermath of Thermopylae and what happened to both the Persians and the Greeks after the Persians were able to you know, march further south after their victory in Thermopylae to, uh, to Athens and beyond. And I'll tell you this, they didn't just march, they sailed as well as this massive Persian invasion force we talked about last week. It had a huge naval contingent as well. It had been held up at the Battle of Artemisium, but now the Greeks had to respond to it after Artemisium was, I guess, technically a defeat for the Greeks as they, as they withdrew or retreated once they'd lost at Thermopylae. But um, the Battle of Salamis was uh, it was also, like Artemisium, it was a naval battle, uh, one of the most important naval battles in ancient history, and it was also a tipping point for the Greco-Persian Wars as a whole. It marked the stage at which the Greeks finally gained the upper hand and began the, their march towards, I get, yeah, sorry, uh, spoilers, I suppose, but eventual victory. I mean... Uh, it did happen two and a half thousand years ago, mate. I, if you're not, if, if we're allowed to spoil Citizen Kane and The Empire Strikes Back these days, I don't know. I don't know what you're complaining about. Bloody spoiling a war that happened, you know, two and a half millennia ago. Anyway, Salamis was one thing. Naval battle, as I say, we'll get to that. Um, but Plataea, or Plataea, was another battle altogether. A battle uh, from this time period that's often terribly overlooked. One that was hugely important. It was decisive. Uh, so we'll have a chat about that. A couple of other things. We'll wrap up wrap up our uh, story of the. Greco-Persian War as a whole, more or less the first of a three-part episode series we've done on Half-Assed History. So, lots to get across today, of course, let's not muck about. Here we go, off down the home stretch with the stories of the battles of Salamis and Plataea. So, we're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to 480 BCE, just as with the last couple of weeks. We're counting years down as time goes by, not up. So, the usual reminder, 480 BCE followed by 479 BCE, not 481 BCE. Um, and uh, anyway, it was back in 480 BCE. I'm just going to say 480. Uh, the entire story today takes place BCE. Uh, it was back in 480 that we left off our story last week, the Greek defeat at Thermopylae, this massive inv- uh, land invasion force supported by a naval contingent that the Persians had brought uh, across the Hellespont, across the Dardanelles uh, from uh, An- An- Anatolia, Asia Minor, into Greece and uh, you know through Macedon, through Thrace, and down now to threatening the the uh, the southern areas of Greece, you know Attica, uh, Megara, Corinth, uh, and and the Peloponnese. So this enormous army had just cleaned up at Thermopylae after a fierce battle there, and this opened up the lands to the south of the pass. As I say, Boeotia, Attica. This is where the Persian army, after uh, having beaten the Greeks at Thermopylae, they raised and they burned and they pillaged the cities there because obviously, you know, punishing them for uh, for their resistance to the invasion. But the destruction and the raising and the pillaging was particularly notable in Athens. The city was one of the largest city-states uh, in, in the Greek world and uh, it had been evacuated once, the, once Thermopylae was lost. But all the same, 
Athens underwent a merciless sacking at the hands of the Persians. They captured the city and they razed it basically to the ground. But one positive for the Greeks out of this, right, was that Xerxes, who was in charge, of course, he's the, he's the Persian emperor at this point, and he's, he's the one in charge of this invasion. Xerxes took his time in attacking and raising all of these cities, particularly Athens, meaning that, meaning that the allied Greek city-states were able to prepare their defences for the battles that they knew were to come. Now, I expect you remember this from the last two episodes. i remind you again, there's no Greece at this point. When I'm talking about Greeks, I'm talking about these Greek allied city-states. Um, that were, you know, fiercely independent, often often rivals with each other. But many of them put aside their differences in, in the face of a common enemy. So obviously, again, when I say Greeks today, I'm talking about this confederate alliance of Greek city-states, principally led by Athens and Sparta. Anyway, the Greeks, while Xerxes is going around uh, burning and pillaging, they put into place their plan B, which you might remember from last week, they built a wall across the Isthmus of Corinth, the narrow strip of land that leads to the Peloponnesian Peninsula, Uh, And they destroyed the only road that went along it. Now, in this way, they would once again be able to force the Persian army into a choke point and undermine their vastly superior numbers. This was one of the greatest advantages that the Persians had. They had just an army of hundreds and hundreds of thousands, completely outnumbered the Greeks. And so the Greeks had to had to find a way to mitigate that. And they did that with, again, like at Thermopylae, the clever use of choke points, which uh, obviously undercut a fair bit of the numerical superiority of the of the Persians, not allowing the entire uh, forced to be deployed and fight at the same time. So, a uh, a, a very uh, you know a, a robust and a pretty sensible plan there. Try to force all of the uh, all of the Persian land forces into a narrow area where the Greeks could uh, could hold them with their defensive hoplites, their phalanxes that we've talked about uh, in the last couple of weeks. And uh, this this was what this was the plan that the Greeks put into action. However, it had one key weakness that they recognised they also had to address here: the Persians as I mentioned before, had naval support. They had a great big fleet of ships, and if fighting in Corinth didn't suit them, if they didn't want to you know, take this, this isthmus across to the Peloponnesian Peninsula, they just didn't have to. They could ferry their troops across the Saronic Gulf and into the Peloponnese anyway to take them more time, certainly, but it would mean that they could circumvent and get around all the defences that the Greeks had put in away. So for that reason, the Greeks needed to to defend the seas as well as the land. Now, you remember last week, the Battle of Artemisium was fought concurrently with the Battle of Thermopylae for this very reason. They needed to contest the the, the Persian navy. And while Artemisium was, I guess, technically a defeat, the Greeks didn't lose too much material there, and they were able to keep their their navy largely intact. Knowing that they had to meet the Persian fleet in battle, the Greeks begin to draw up their plans. And these plans are dominated by an Athenian general whose name was Themistocles, right? He had fought at the Battle of Marathon. He's a veteran. He's a very, very clever bloke indeed. And his plan, Themistocles, he wanted to draw the Persians into a naval battle, once again, in close confines, in a narrow strait, or again, any other area where, again, the Persians' numerical, numerical superiority could be rendered irrelevant. As a result, after withdrawing from Artemisium, the Greek fleet used the time that Xerxes had given them with his looting and his pillaging to reposition in the Straits of Salamis. Now, this is west of Athens. Um, it's uh, between the mainland of Greece and the Isle of Salamis. And this is where, in the weeks that followed, this is where the, the, Greek, the Greek fleet went and parked up. And after having set up shop there, Themistocles was responsible for a very clever piece of trickery that lured the Persians into a neat little trap. Have a listen to this. The Persians finally approached the Straits of Salamis. You know, they headed, uh, they headed into the Saronic Gulf here, ready to support any land invasion that would head across Corinth. 
And Themistocles, at this point, once the Persian uh, fleet is approaching, Themistocles sent a messenger to Xerxes. And I tell you this, he lied through his bloody teeth, mate. He said to Xerxes that the Greek leadership was, it was disintegrating. It was being torn apart from within thanks to all the infighting and the rivalries and the, the, the years of enmity, enmity between all of these city-states. And on top of that, because of this disintegrating leadership, Athens was, if you'll believe it, ready to defect and join the Persians. He spun this yarn to Xerxes about how the Greeks were planning to evacuate the Peloponnese. I mean, remember, listen, Athens isn't on the Peloponnesian Peninsula. Athens has already been sacked. Themistocles telling uh, Xerxes that he was ready to affect the that Athens was ready to you know give up and surrender. It does kind of make some sense because like what is Athens still fighting for? They've lost their city. They're not Peloponnesian. They may be ready to just throw in the towel here. But uh, he goes to Xerxes. He says, "Listen, mate," or he sends a message to Xerxes, I should say, and and says, "Listen, you know, the the Greek leadership's falling apart. They want to they want to evacuate the Peloponnese, uh, and all you need to do, effectively, to to stop this from happening, is to blockade the Straits of Salamis. If they do that, the Greek navy will have nowhere to go. They'll be stuck in the Saronic Gulf, and this this evacuation effort will be completely unsuccessful and leave the entire Greek world utterly undefended." Now, Xerxes. He can't believe his luck. He is thrilled with this news. Not only has he done what his dad Darius couldn't couldn't do and finally broken the spirits of the Athenians, he'd finally gotten, gotten them to surrender. As they're doing so, they're selling out all of their Greek mates. So this is a total win for Xerxes. Again, he can't believe his luck. He's over the moon here. And uh, he immediately, immediately mobilizes his navy to blockade the straits, as suggested by Themistocles and, of course, that's just what the Greeks were hoping for. It, the entire thing was a ruse. Xerxes had fallen for it, hook, line, and sinker. There was no plan to evacuate. Themistocles and the Athenians were not about to defect, but Xerxes was so ready to hear this news. And again, you know, in his defence, it did make sense that the Athenians might want to give up at this point. That he went, he went for this plan like a bull at a gate. The Greeks, seeing that Xerxes had taken the bait, they got ready to fight, happy to have had, you know, a much more advantageous set of circumstances and conditions that they'd hoped for here. They got ready to fight this battle in the Straits of Salamis, again, in the close confines of this narrow strait. Now, according to our mate Herodotus, you can, you know, you can check him out in the Sunnies on the front cover of the podcast, the Greeks had 378 triremes. Other historians often, you know, they, they offer different numbers, usually lower there, so that not all of them agree with Herodotus. But uh, everyone is in agreement when it comes to the size of the Persian fleet, which is to say it was much bloody bigger. Uh, Herodotus puts the number at 1,207 uh, Persian, uh, Persian ships, which obviously is... A fair bit more than what the Greeks had, although it's likely that only around 600 of those ships were actually deployed to Salamis at this point. But look, any way you slice it, the Persians heavily outnumber the Greeks. And this isn't the only advantage they have at the water. Um, all the Persian sailors, very experienced. They've, they've, you know, they've got their sea legs. They've been, sailing, uh, they've been sailing around for years and years and years. And comparatively speaking, the Greek, uh, the Greek naval forces, the Greek sailors, are, uh, you know, they don't have anywhere near the experience uh, at sea that the Persians do. So... Initially, you're thinking, well, maybe, how, how bad could it possibly be for the Persians? They've got a bigger navy, it's more experienced. Well, again, we're going to find out just how crucial, just how decisive the use of terrain. Is it still terrain when it's at water, when it's on the water? I don't know. Anyway, the Greeks, home ground advantage, defenders advantage, they, and I'll tell you what, they put these things to, uh, to terrific use here. 
the, the, the fact that the Greeks were outnumbered, this wasn't new for them. They'd fought the entire war outnumbered. They knew what weaknesses they needed to exploit from the Persians here. The first and foremost weakness was using this home ground advantage they had to choose where the fighting would take place. Tight, constricted battlefields like Thermopylae, Artemisium, and now Salamis, so as to make numerical superiority less important. Secondly, the Greeks knew that Xerxes wouldn't be able to supply this massive army, this massive navy that he had for... for he wouldn't be able to supply them forever. And so they knew that time was on their side. If they could stretch the conflict out, pure attrition would make the they would force that would force the Persians to withdraw eventually because they would just run out of food. Thirdly, Xerxes personally is there in Greece overseeing this invasion, which I'll remind you is occurring at the fringe of his overall realm. He can't afford to be there in Greece forever, or there are going to be other areas of the Persian Empire that would you know take advantage of his absence and rise up in rebellion as well. The Greeks also enjoyed some other advantages. I mean, these, you know, th- those are the advantages in general that they've had while fighting off this invasion. But there are more specific advantages that they enjoyed here at Salamis. Their ships were a lot newer, number one, right? So they're in, they're in better nick. But number two, they're a lot heavier. And you're probably sitting there, sitting there going, hang on, wait a minute, hang on, hang on, hang on. How could heavy ships be an advantage here? Surely you want mobility. Surely you, you, you want speed. You want light ships that can zip around all over the place in a naval battle. Well, not when the primary tactic for fighting on water at the time was ramming and boarding. The Greek ships were stronger. They were more stable in the strong winds of the strait. And they were better able to ram the lighter Persian ships. And additionally... Greek ships all carried a contingent of 20 heavily armoured hoplites as marines. Now, not only did this add, you know, two tonnes of weight to each ship, but it also meant that the hand-to-hand fighting aboard the ships would favour the heavy Greek infantry once again. And besides, you know, quite aside from the, the, the weight of the ship and, and, their, and their strength as new ships being an advantage when it comes to ramming and boarding, manoeuvrability and, and speed, absolutely useless in defending a narrow strait. You need rock-solid strength, not the ability to, you know, to zip around the battlefield at a million miles an hour. And this strength is just what the Greeks had. In fact, the only real advantages that the Persians had, as I say, their numbers and their more experienced sailors, both these advantages were heavily undercut by the battle taking place in these close quarters, as you'll see. Anyway, Xerxes, he's taken the bait, and so on the 26th or the 27th of September, 480 BCE, we're not sure exactly which date was on, Xerxes sends his fleet in to block this, you know, supposed evacuation of fractious Greeks. But instead, instead of finding a, uh, you know, a, a desperate fleeing force of evacuees, he instead comes across a unified, united line of Greek warships. Absolute disaster. Xerxes has built himself a throne and perched himself on top of a nearby mount that overlooked the strait so he could watch the battle unfold in front of him. And he realises very quickly that things may not be what he expected them, principally because the Athenians, who you know had talked about defecting and surrendering, made up the bulk of the Greek fleet. Around 180 of the 387 or so ships that were fighting for the Greeks in the Straits of Salamis belonged to the Athenians. So it was a far cry from what Xerxes was expecting. You know, this, this capitulated, surrendering force of Athenians ended up being the bulk of the, uh, you know, the Navy that he, against which he was fighting. Anyway, he sets himself up on this throne and he gets ready to, uh, well, 
he gets through to basically have his pants pulled down and and given a, a you know a proper hiding by by Themistocles and the Greeks here because as uh, at dawn right as the battle begins the Greeks at first they feign a retreat and so Xerxes is going oh hang on hang on maybe maybe what's going ahead here maybe it's going to be okay. And so the Persians are lured further into the strait, as they obviously want to bear down on the Greeks and give battle. But then, once the once the Persians have entered the Straits of Salamis properly, once they're unable to manoeuvre or move around in any effective way whatsoever, the Greeks rushed forward to ram the Persian fleet. They formed up into a wedge formation and drove themselves towards the Persians at great speed. Now, the Persians are already in a bad way. Far too many ships in too small a waterway, and the onset of hundreds of Greek ships bearing down at them at top speed only led to more chaos. This Greek wedge rammed into the centre of the Persian fleet, blasted the ships to bits, or if the if the rams missed the bodies of the ships, they, they, they sliced off the oars along the sides of the, uh, of the Persian ships. And then... Once the ships were joined in battle, the armoured hoplites would then board the Persian ships, you know, the, well, those that survived the rammings, that is, and uh, and capture them. Slaughter everyone on board, capture the ships. Of course, the Persian ships attempted to evade the ramming and the boarding, but there were so many of them in such a tight space that they couldn't manoeuvre. No good having experienced sailors and quick ships if there's nowhere to move them. In fact, as the Greek wedge drove further into the Persian fleet, the ships at either edge of the strait were actually driven ashore. They ran aground as the fleet was sliced down the middle. It was an unmitigated disaster for the Persians. After having been drawn into this narrow strait, the Greek counteroffensive tore the Persians to bits and ruined their navy. Herodotus tells us one particularly interesting story from this battle. Apparently, at one point, there was a Persian ship that attempted to flee the straits after being pursued by a Greek ship. Now, this Persian ship was under the command of Artemisia of Halicarnassus. Now, this is not the Artemisia of Halicarnassus that built the mausoleum. She'll come along a century or so later, episode 77, get across it. But this Artemisia of, uh, of Halicarnassus, Artemisia I, she ordered a swift bloody retreat when she realised that uh, her ship was being targeted for a, for a ramming at the hands of the Greeks here. She ordered a swift retreat, uh, ordered her ship to, to, to turn around and sail away with all speed. And so swift was her retreat, in fact, that she ended up ramming an allied Persian, Persian ship on her way out, destroying it and killing everyone on board. Now, this had some very interesting consequences. The Greek ship that had been pursuing Artemisia stopped, stopped chasing her, as they thought that she was a friend and not a foe. She just sunk a Persian ship. And Xerxes, who, as I said, is watching the battle from afar on this throne, he, he saw the Greek ship turn away and flee from Artemisia and thought that Artemisia had defeated this Greek ship in, in order for it to, to sail away from her and didn't realise that Artemisia just sank one of one of her allied ships there. And this misapprehension, combined with how badly the rest of the battle was going under the command of his other captains, made Xerxes say that, my men have become women and my women men. Artemisia, by the way, she knew what she was talking about. Uh, before the battle, she actually advised Xerxes not to enter the straits, knowing that it was an unnecessary strategic risk and the, the, the navy would be better placed just, you know, supporting the, the, the forces on land there. But she wasn't listened to. She argued to just facilitate the land invasion in Corinth. Her advice wasn't heeded. And, and now Xerxes is bloody paying the price. Should have listened to Artemisia, Xerxes' old mate. But anyway, that was that. 
The Battle of Salamis was a devastating loss for the Persians, a decisive loss. The Greeks, all in all, they lost about 40 ships, right? But the Persians lost upwards of 200, maybe as many as 300. And to make things worse, many of them had been captured rather than sunk by the Greeks. It turns out that that numerical advantage isn't so handy after all when your enemies start nicking all your toys. Now, we don't know exactly how many people died in this battle, but on the Persian side at least, it would have been in the thousands upon thousands, because according to Herodotus, many of the Persians couldn't swim. So the Greeks had done it. They'd won the day. They'd broken the Persian fleet. The Battle of Salamis ended up being a tipping point in the Greco-Persian Wars, as I say, because from here on out, the Greeks would go on the offensive. They weren't the ones defending their homelands anymore. They were the ones driving the invaders out. And eventually, of course, they would go on to win the whole war. But that's, that's still decades away. For now, in the aftermath of Salamis, Xerxes is spitting chips. He is as cross as a frog in a sock and he doesn't handle it well. He has a bunch of his sailors put to death for their failure, you know, for their failure in the Battle of Salamis. Imagine that. You go off fighting this battle, manage to be the one, one of the ones who survived, and then you come back and you, and you get executed by your boss. Unbelievable. But as a result of these executions, many more sailors, uh, they desert. I talked about how the fact that, you know, I talked about the fact that the, the Persian Empire wasn't hugely united. And there were a bunch of sailors who sailed under Xerxes, and when they saw, you know, a bunch of their colleagues having their heads lopped off by him, they thought, well, bugger this for a joke, and they got in their ships in the middle of the night, and they sailed away from the Persian fleet, further further winnowing down its numbers after the defeat at Salamis. So Xerxes having a bloody terrible, I mean, I say he's having a terrible time, I imagine the people he killed probably had a worse one, but all the same, it's not a good day for him, right? His fleet has been obliterated. He's no longer able to support his troops on land or force his way past the Greek defences at Corinth. Remember, they've got this wall, they've got this destroyed road. There's no chance the Persians are going to be able to get across that. There's no, there's no path through the mountains for them to surround the, uh, uh, the Greeks like they did in Thermopylae this time. And on top of this, Xerxes is harbouring a very deep and, and abiding fear here that he may lose everything. He is afraid that things will only get worse from here and makes a pretty drastic decision after this disastrous defeat because of this fear. I'll tell you what he was afraid of. Remember last week how I mentioned that Xerxes had built a pontoon bridge across the Hellespont, across what we today call the Dardanelles. He was worried that now, you know, with his navy in tatters, that the Greeks might sail straight to the Hellespont and destroy this vulnerable pontoon bridge. And if they did this, that would trap Xerxes' army, would trap the Persians in hostile Greece without a way to return to friendly Anatolia. There's no navy to take them home anymore. And if he, if he was worried about supply issues beforehand, it would be a million times worse if they were cut off across the Hellespont. So, if you'll believe it, so strong is Xerxes' fear that he'll be, he, he'll be isolated and, and cut off in Greece with the destruction of the, of the, the pontoon bridge across the Hellespont. He orders a near full-scale retreat from Greece, not just from Attica or Boeotia or, or anything like that, but from Greece itself, all the way back across the Hellespont and into Anatolia. Now, he did, he did leave behind a contingent of soldiers under the command of his general Mardonius uh, and gave them orders to continue the offensive against the Greeks. But the bulk of his army, the, again, the largest army that the world has yet seen by many accounts, underwent a full withdrawal back to the Persian Empire. And even Mardonius' army, it retreated as, as, as far as Boeotia, spending the winter there as the Greeks reinforced their defensive positions to the south. 
So once again, just as with Marathon, the Greeks have won a monumental victory. And you'll remember from that episode how much importance historians attach to the Greek victories during this conflict. The foundation of Western civilization was born out of ancient Greece. And these victories were what allowed ancient Greece to flourish and, and have the effect that it did on history. So, much like Marathon, Salamis was a battle of colossal significance. And the world would likely look very different if Xerxes hadn't rushed into the straits with his fleet. But the war didn't end there, far from it. There was still a sizable Persian contingent left behind in Greece, and Salamis wasn't the nail in the coffin for the Persian campaign. Rather, it was, as I said, the tipping point, the point at which the conflict began to favour the Greeks and that began them on their path to eventual victory. But the battles that truly cemented the Greek victory took place the next year, in 479 BCE, and we're going to get across them quickly here as well. Over the winter between 480 and 479, the Greeks consolidated their forces. They managed to raise about 80,000 troops. They were finally within Kui of the remaining forces, which uh, the remaining Persian forces, which numbered between 70,000 and 120,000. We've got, we got various accounts of how big the, the remaining Persian force was. So for the time and for this part of the world as well, this is a massive army. The, Gre- the fact that the Greeks were able to raise you know, in, in excess of 80,000 troops to defend their homeland was, was just enormous. And I talked about the fact that time was on the side of the Greeks during this conflict, and this is a good example of exactly how. However, the cracks were beginning to show in the Greek alliance. Perhaps now that the enemy was being driven back, these old rivalries were coming back to the fore. Now there wasn't that desperation in defending their homeland. These, uh, the old enmity was, uh, was rising to the surface once again. But look, whatever the case, Mardonius, he responded to the reports of, Greeks dis- of Greek disunity by attempting to negotiate with Athens. Maybe he thought Themistocles, all the, the, the lying that he'd done about, uh, about them surrendering before the Battle of Salamis, maybe he thought there was a grain of truth in there. Because uh, he approached the Athenians, Mardonius did. Athens had been recaptured, had been repopulated over the winter by the Athenians, but Mardonius... He approached the city with offers of peace, should they actually defect the Persians this time and bring with them their enormous fleet, as I say, the bulk of the Greek navy. The Athenians, however, they refused the offer. They said, absolutely not, stick it up your bum. Mardonius was left in a tricky position because what was he to do here? Marching on the Peloponnese was impossible with the defences at Corinth. He didn't have a navy anymore to support him. So what was his next move? Well, he decided to fall back on a move that had been very successful the year before. It worked last time, so try it again. He marched on Athens for a second time and hoping to recapture it off the Greeks. And it worked because the Greeks also took the approach of, well, it worked last time and evacuated the city. It was recaptured by the Persians, sacked for a second time and you know, second time in as many years by them. But with their city in ruins, Mardonius approached the Athenians a second time and he said, listen, Say, the offer's still on the table. You know, we'll offer you a peaceful surrender. You can come and fight on our side of things. But this time, the Athenians, rather than just telling him where to stick it, they decided to turn this offer to their advantage. The enormous force of Greeks that I mentioned, these 80,000 warriors that had been that had been assembled, they weren't prepared to march forth from the defences at Corinth and the defences they had in the Peloponnese. The Spartans in particular, they refused. They wanted to defend their homeland. But the Athenians, 
they thought they'd come up with a way here to get them on the offensive because obviously the Athenians want this massive army of of, uh, of Greek soldiers to march forth and drive the drive the Persians out further and further away from the Greek homelands. Never mind that Sparta's safe. Be nice if you know other areas, Athens and whatever else, could also be secured from the Persian invaders here. So the Athenians decide to threaten their allies with the prospect of accepting the Persian offer and defecting unless the Spartans got their asses into gear and attacked the Persians. Now, I don't know if they were going to follow through on this threat or if it was just an empty gesture, but the Athenians sent off emissaries to the Spartans and the rest of the Greeks and and instructed them to say, listen, if you don't come and and try to help us, if you don't take the fight to these Persians, we're going to flip the script and we're going to start fighting for them. However, before the Persian, before the Athenian emissaries could arrive to give the Spartans this ultimatum, once they arrived, they were surprised to learn that the Spartans had already left. They'd already marched to meet the Persians themselves. They were ready to do battle and they didn't need to be coerced. So the Athenian emissaries, they arrived like, oh, yeah, what message have you got? Oh, nah, nothing. Just, uh, you know, just come to say, hey, how you going, mate? Everything good? Okay, you've marched off. Great. Well, we're going to, well, I mean, we're going to head off and join them as well, like we were always going to. Definitely weren't going to defect or anything else like that. Very awkward meeting, you would have thought there. Anyway. The Spartans march off, the Athenians join in the rest of the Greek city-states as well that are part of this alliance, all head off to, uh, you know, to seek a, a battle, potentially decisive battle, with Mardonius and the Persian forces that are there. And after learning about this approaching Greek army, Mardonius, he chucks a yui, he goes into retreat, he pulls his forces out of Athens and heads north, right, into Boeotia. Now, we've talked enough about Persian battle tactics that you won't be surprised when I tell you what Mardonius was looking for as part of this withdrawal. He was looking to stage the battle that he knew was coming with the Greeks on open, flat ground, where he could finally put his cavalry to good use against the Greek hoplites. We've talked about the weaknesses of the Greek hoplites. We've talked about how they're weak against cavalry on open ground, particularly when manoeuvring, and how the Greeks had done a very good job of mitigating the effectiveness of Persian cavalry by choosing their battlefields carefully. In Marathon, they parked themselves on top of steep hills, made sure that they were in good defensive positions and could withstand a cavalry charge. Uh, at Thermopylae, right, they they found this tiny narrow choke point on marshy ground, meant the cavalry wasn't going to be very effective there at all. Mardonius wanted to avoid that sort of thing happening again, and so he moved his army to a field with a river running through it near the Greek city of Plataea, and he set up a fortified encampment in the middle of these plains. Little, you know, the hills, there were a couple of hills here and there on these plains, but uh, broadly speaking, open and much flatter ground than where the Persians had fought before. So, the Greeks pursued Mardonius, right? But, just as with Marathon, after arriving where the Greeks were camped, they didn't take the fight with the Greeks on this relatively open ground. They instead camped themselves on ocup- uh, and camped themselves occupied defensive positions on the hills around the edges of the plains. And then a whole lot of nothing happened. These two colossal forces just stood there in a stalemate, staring at each other, neither wanting to actually attack. And this went on for days. This seemed to be a very common element of this entire conflict. The Greeks and the Persians did a lot of staring at each other from across the battlefield before they got to the fighting. But there was very good reason. Neither army wanted to attack. The Greeks didn't want to march into Persian cavalry. The Persians didn't want to attack hoplites uphill. And this time around, unlike Marathon, the Greek army is bloody massive. It's 80,000 troops strong, just under half of which were these heavily armoured hoplites. And it only got bigger as the days passed and more and more soldiers arrived to fight the Persians. But during this time, 
Mardonius wasn't doing nothing. He wasn't just sitting on his hands. No, no, he finally put his cavalry to good use. Even if he wasn't able to tempt the Greeks into a fully pitched battle, he was still able to use his cavalry, use their mobility to send out raiding parties, hit and run tactics, and particularly raiding to disrupt the Greek supply lines. And this worked a bloody treat, can I tell you. The Persians were camped by a river. They controlled the only sources of water, and the Greeks now aren't getting their supplies in. The Greeks attempted to re, uh, reposition themselves, secure some springs and some other places where they were going to be able to draw water to, uh, you know, to slake the thirst of their troops. But the Persians were able to use their cavalry to make sure that not only were the Greeks kept off of these sources of water, but also that their supply lines were, were disrupted and in some places cut, so the Greeks were running out of food. The Persian army was well provisioned, and it was them who were, who were in a better position now when it comes to uh, when it comes to supplies. And all of a sudden, the impetus instead is on the Greeks to do something about this. Realizing their position on these hills wasn't as secure as they thought. The, the Greeks actually began to talk about withdrawing from the battlefield altogether, uh, securing their supply lines, going back a little bit, and meeting the Persians in battle another time. Because if their supplies were cut off once and for all, that'd be it for them. They'd be stuck without food and water on top of these hills, and time would then be on the Persian side, who could continue to you know wait, use their cavalry to prevent resupply, and then eventually attack a weakened and starving force. So. On the 27th of August, 479, the Greeks decide to retreat. They realise that this isn't going to be their battle, this isn't going to be their day, and so they make the decision to pull out and begin to withdraw from their positions on these hills. But here's the good bit. It was very much going to be the Greeks' day. The retreat started off as an absolute disaster. It was chaotic. It was disorganized. There's blokes running around like headless chooks, not, not knowing what's going on, where they're supposed to be going. And Mardonius, he sees this. He goes, we got it. The Greeks, they're finally panicking. This fractious leadership we've heard so much about is finally broken. And the, and the, the it's, it's a full-scale retreat. Boys, let's go and get them. He thinks they've broken into uh, you know a, a full-scale... Full, I mean, I was going to say withdrawal, but he thinks it's disordered and, and it's basically a panicked retreat. And so Mardonius orders the attack. He quickly marches his infantry across the plains to fight the Greeks while they're trying to retreat. And this, as you might have guessed, proved to be a bad move. As even if the Greeks were slapdash and disorganised in retreating, they somehow and some way turned it all around once they realised they were under attack. The Greek hoplites, particularly the Athenians, the Spartans, and the Tegeans, they stopped what they were doing. They quickly picked up their weapons, drew up into battle formation, still atop these hills, and you'd think the Persians would have learnt their lesson by now, but no, Mardonius, he sent his infantry into the heavily armoured Greek hoplites in their phalanx formations on top of these hills, and the Greeks tore the Persians to pieces. While Mardonius probably thought he, you know, he was seizing the advantage by pursuing these retreating Greeks, he was completely taken off guard. He had his pants pulled down by the Greeks, you know, who abandoned their retreat and turned to fight at the drop of a hat. And it is a mistake, my friends, that cost him his very life. As thousands of Persians fell to Greek spears, Mardonius himself was also slain. And with this death, the Persian ranks broke completely. The Persians routed, they fled back to their encampment, and this time it was the Greeks' turn to give chase. They ran down the Persian army and annihilated them. They trapped them in their camp and slaughtered them wholesale. It was once again a total and complete victory for the Greeks, just like at Marathon, but this time it was decisive. After this, the Persians simply didn't have an army in Greece anymore. 
I mean, that many Persians were killed at Plataea that the Persian campaign was undeniably, unquestionably over. We don't have concrete numbers on the casualties, but the Persian dead numbers at, numbered at least in the tens of thousands, while the Greeks lost maybe a thousand or so, maybe less. According to, her, to Herodotus, it was only 139. But whatever the case, it was a stunning victory for the Greeks that ended the Persian invasion more or less on the spot. And it was mirrored by another battle that, according to Herodotus, took place on the very same day, the 27th of August. So much for it not being the Greeks' day. The Battle of Mycale saw the destruction of the remnants of the Persian navy as well. After Salamis, the, uh, these stragglers had retreated to the island of Samos, just, after, uh, just off the coast of modern-day Turkey. But uh, the next year, in 479, the Greeks sent their fleet after the Persians to chase them down and to eradicate the remaining, you know, the remaining naval forces that the Persians had there. And after realising that they were being pursued by the Greeks, the Persians, they left Samos and, believe it or not, beached their entire fleet at the base of Mount Mycale. It's called Mount Dilek today in modern-day Turkey. And there, the Persians joined up with other Persian forces, built a defensive palisade, and when the Greeks arrived, they got ready to try to fend them off. The Greeks, however, landed their heavily armoured hoplites that served as marines on their ships, and, well, you probably know how it goes from there. Persian infantry against Greek hoplites, yeah, it was another massacre. The Persians were cut down tens of thousands of dead once again, although the Greeks did lose a sizable proportion of their troops in this battle, especially compared with their minimal losses in Marathon and Plataea. But the Greeks carried the day. Once again, according to Herodotus, it was the very same day that the Battle of Plataea had been fought on the other side of the Aegean. And after the Greeks won the Battle of Mycale, the, they burnt the Persian ships to cinders, meaning that in one single day, both the Persian army and the Persian navy were completely destroyed, and the invasion had been stopped for good. With the battles of Plataea and Mycale, the Greeks secured a complete and total victory over the Persian invading force, and the, and the Greco-Persian wars now entered their next phase. There were still 30 years of fighting between the Greeks and the Persians here, but these three decades were dominated by the Greeks. In fact, the very next year, in 478, the Greeks recaptured Byzantium, modern-day Istanbul, a very important victory that, uh, that, that helped to shore up their position. Although this victory would ultimately spell the end of the alliance between all of the, the Greek city-states, thanks to the arrogance and the violence of the, of the leadership of the Spartans, the Spartans managed to piss off the rest of the Greeks to the point that they didn't want to fight alongside them anymore. And this suited the Spartans down to the ground, can I say this? They didn't want to fight the Persians anymore at all. They considered the war to be over with the invading force that had been defeated, and so they went back to the Peloponnese, and that was it for them. And as a result of the Spartans uh, withdrawing from, this, uh, from the Greco-Persian wars, it was Athens instead that took the sole leadership of the fight against the Persians. You'll remember that uh, Ionia, the, the region that had been conquered by the, uh, the Persians, the region, the region that had risen up in revolt in the early, in the early 5th century, uh, this had been, the Ionian colonies had been Athenians that had moved there. And so Athens felt a, a sense of responsibility and, and, and was still heavily motivated to try to fight the Persians in Ionia. And so, as I say, they took leadership of the fight against the Persians and the new, and the new alliance of the city-states that remained was called the Delian League under Athenian leadership. The Delian League continued to fight against the Persians and did a very bloody good job of it too. Across the 470s and beyond, they liberated Ionia. Uh, the unsuccessful Ionian revolt from years ago was finally avenged. And uh, other Greek areas under Persian control also threw off imperial rule, like Thrace and Macedon. And in the 460s, the Delian League got so aggressive in fighting the Persians 
that they actually supported other rebellious areas outside of the Greek world uh, that were within the Persian Empire. They sent troops to Egypt to help those that were revolting against Persian rule there. Now, this didn't work out too well for them. The Greeks got lost a sizable chunk of their forces, um, which was one of the things that actually prompted an eventual peace agreement between the Greeks and the Persians. Um, The other, you know, somewhat significant reason that the Delian League and, and those Greek allies stopped fighting the Persians at this stage was because they had to fight someone else. And I, you'll, you'll never guess who it was. It was, of course, the Spartans. Yes, in 460, the first Peloponnesian War began. The Spartans sought to curtail the growing power of Athens. And, uh, and, and look, that, that is another story for another time. The Peloponnesian War is, is absolutely fascinating, but it is obviously too much to get into here. But uh, it was one of the reasons that the the, the Greco-Persian Wars just kind of fell apart more than anything else. They ended reasonably quietly. They officially came to a close in 449 BCE after 50 years of conflict. And there may have been a peace treaty signed between uh, the Delian League and, and, the, and the Persians. We're not 100% sure. Historians both now and then still still debate whether that actually took place. But the war kind of fizzled out towards the end of things, even though it was unquestionably a Greek victory. They, 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 they threw back the invaders. They uh, liberated the places that had been under Persian rule, Ionia, Thrace, Macedon. They regained their independence from Persian rule. And the attempts of Darius and Xerxes to invade Greece had been brought undone very decisively. And the end of these wars, the Greco-Persian wars, and particularly the end of the second invasion, this heralded the beginning of one of the most important phases of ancient Greek history, known as the Classical Period. This is the period that gave us the peak of Athenian democracy. It gave us the philosophy of of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. It gave us the plays of Sophocles, the medicine of, 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 of Hippocrates, and of course, the history of our mate Herodotus. Classical Greece is, for better or worse, the foundation of Western civilization. And as I've said a couple of a couple of times over the last weeks, the world would be a very different place had the Persians triumphed at Marathon, at Salamis, or at Plataea. Well, it's, you know, it's always very interesting to look at these what-if moments in history and, and, and think about how it might be different if a single battle had gone a different way. I mean, the Battle of Tours is another good example of this, episodes 14 and 15, get across them. But the fact of the matter is, that this is so long ago, so far removed from today's age, that the Western world would be utterly unrecognisable had things gone the Persians' way at one of these battles. But as it was, the Greeks triumphed and brought upon, brought about a Greek golden age that set the stage for Western history for thousands and thousands of years to come. It's impossible to say what could have happened if things had gone a different way, but there would have been no classical Greece There would have been no Athenian democracy. And most importantly of all, who knows who we'd have wearing sunglasses on the logo of the podcast. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the battles of Salamis and Plataea. And more broadly, that is the story of the Greco-Persian War, a sneaky three-parter that I didn't really mark as being such, but it has been really, really good fun to get across a topic in such detail. 
Something that I've, I've, I'm, I'm keen to get some feedback on, I always feel like I have to do lots of different varied topics and I can't stick in one you know, period or point or place in history for too long. But then I get requests for people wanting to hear about things like Napoleon or you know, Alexander the Great or, or broader, longer, large scale, uh, you know, the French Revolution, whatever else, um, large scale historical events that I definitely couldn't fit into one episode. So if you've enjoyed this sort of, you know, sneaky three-parter across across the last couple of weeks about this larger event in history, I do want to hear your voices and let me know what you've thought, because if you want more longer scale stuff that's broken up into separate episodes, maybe we could do something like Napoleon, you know, an episode, a series of episodes that would take you know, weeks, maybe a month to get across just just how much uh, this bloke got up to. I mean, if it took me two weeks to do Mozart, imagine how long it's going to take me to do someone like Julius Caesar. Unbelievable. But if this is content that you're enjoying, if this is a, you know, the form, a form of the podcast that you're interested in, please let me know. Uh, I know it's not the sort of silly, jokey, funny history that, that Half-Us History is kind of built upon, but I don't know, man. I just learned, I learned so much reading about this and I really enjoyed doing these three episodes. So if it's the sort of thing you'd like to see more of, please let me know. The best way to get in touch with the show, of course, is via the website, halfhousehistory.net. There's a contact form there. So do get in touch and let me know your thoughts. And if you've got other suggestions for longer form episodes, if you enjoyed this one. Um, and of course, quick plug for all the other stuff there. Merch uh, is available at the shop. You can follow the link from halfhousehistory.net, the, the link to the merch shop there. You can go and buy whatever you want. Uh, and of course, I want to thank all the patrons, old and new alike. Plenty of new patrons coming in with a new free merch offer that's coming through the Patreon at the moment. Um, uh, I've, I've uh, reached a, a significant milestone of having over 200 people support me on Patreon. And thank you to each and every one of those many of whom will be enjoying the uh, the merch, the free Patreon merch that comes with just, I say free, I mean, you still have to pay for Patreon stuff. The merch is at no extra cost. Uh, and also, I say enjoying, maybe they'll hate it. I don't know, but it doesn't matter. I've already got the money, no refunds. Thanks the money, suckers. I mean, you know, all of your support is so very appreciated. And thank you so much for, you know, backing me up as I do this dumb podcast every week. Anyway, back next week with more nonsense. Looking forward to your company then. Thanks for tuning in and being part of this uh, this podcast. Tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell people about whom you feel largely ambivalent. And I'll see you next week for more half House History. Until then, leaving you with a question posed on Reddit, of course, Reddit historian Guitarburst05. It's got an interesting one to do with Persian history for us. <clears throat> From Darius Rucker to Billy Ray Cyrus. Why is country music so influenced by Achaemenid Persian?